you have your Bibles, I will invite you to turn with me to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, beginning in verse 25. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, you can find that on page 948 of our Please Take That as our gift to you this morning, John chapter 7, again, beginning in verse 25. If you were to have a conversation with my mom or with Jessica, that's my wife, with Jessica's mom, you would quickly recognize that they're not from the United States. Now, I trust you all know this. You can't tell by looking at somebody where they were born. How would you surmise they weren't born here? They have a tell. Among other things, their accents. So a natural question to ask them as you're getting to know them is where are you from? What is your origin? Where were you born? My mom would quickly tell you Mexico, more specifically a little village named San Francisco outside of Guadalajara. If you asked Jess's mom, she would quickly tell you Brentwood, a little village outside of Nashville. Now, you'd be confused because it's not the accent you're hearing. It's a true statement. She lives in Brentwood. You'd ask her again. Okay, before Brentwood, humor me. I'm going to do my best Jessica's mom's accent. She'd say, oh, before Brentwood, we lived in Saddleback, California. You'd say, oh, okay, before that. Okay, she's really milking this. She probably gets to do this once a week. She says, oh, I see for the majority of our lives, we lived in Dallas, Texas. Okay, okay, before that, you finally get, she was born in England. Now you can't, origin explains their culture, their habits, their lingo, their practices. If you want to really get to know someone, you should spend a holiday with them. This Christmas, we invited Kate Ramsey to spend Christmas dinner with us because Jonathan, her husband, unexpectedly had a fly that day. So she came over for dinner. She would have seen immediately that on her plates are what are called Christmas crackers. So Jess's family is with us. It's like an American British Christmas. Christmas crackers. These are not things you eat. They're things you pop. I don't even know how to explain them. You know what it is if you know what it is. Inside of it, there are these like corny jokes we tell, these like cheap toys and these uh, paper crowns. We wore paper crowns for the whole of the meal. Yeah. And then for dessert, there's something called uh, Christmas cake. We actually warned Kate about it when Jess's parents left the room. If you didn't grow up eating Christmas cake, you are not going to like it. Then you pour brandy on it. <laughs> if you've never had brandy, it's like liquor that tastes like raisins. You're not going to like it. Then you set it on fire. Get this. You're still not going to like it. Uh, it's, very, it's a very British, British experience. Later on that evening, we uh, watched Mr. Bean's Christmas and drank sherry. Probably not what your Christmas looked like. If we did Christmas in my family, we would have done tamales and played dominoes. Different cultures, different practices, different gifts, different holiday experiences. All explained by origin. If you want to really get to know somebody, you have to understand where they're from. You see, origin explains more than where. It explains why. It's key to who we are. If you want to really misunderstand someone disregard their origins, their tastes, or taboos. Their way of thinking completely corresponds to your own. You've got to get where to understand who and why. John's gospel is unique among the four, the synoptics, because of how he answers the origin question. There's no Christmas story. The synoptics are stressing something a little bit different. Matthew begins his genealogy with origin, 
His is a callback to the book of Genesis. Genesis is structured around a series of genealogies. Matthew writes, Matthew 1.17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14. From David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. From exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. Matthew is stressing Jesus' human birth and his humanity as a fulfillment to the covenants made with Abraham, David, and Israel. John also begins his gospel with a callback to the book of Genesis with something of a genealogy. His focus, however, is on a sonship older than time and basic to God's own being. You have to understand the prologue to get everything going on in the book of John. That's why he begins with it. Origin, John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father full of grace and truth. To get Jesus, you have to understand that he's Abraham's offspring, that he's David's greater son, that he's true Israel. If you don't get that, you don't get him. But you also have to understand, I would say even more important, is that we get his heavenly from the Father sent into the world as man at the fullness of time to save his people. If you don't get where he's from, you won't get anything. His heavenly origin comes before his gospel offer. And yet there's nothing in the book of John that the crowds and the leaders misunderstand more than where Jesus is from. It's because of where Jesus is from that he can actually give us what he gives. His origin precedes his offer. Keep that in mind as we read the text. John chapter 7, it's quite a long text. If you are able, I will invite you to stand with me in reverence for the reading of Holy Scripture. John chapter 7. Some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Yet look, he's speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to him. Can it be true that the authorities know he is the Messiah? But we won't know where this man, but we know where this man is. As he was teaching in the temple, Jesus cried out, You know me and you know where I am from. Yet I have not come on my own. But the one who sent me is true. You don't know him. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. Then they tried to seize him. Um, however, many from the crowd believed in him and said, When the Messiah comes, he won't perform more signs than this man has done, will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things about him, and so the chief priests and the Pharisees sent servants to arrest him. Then Jesus said, I am only with you for a short time. Then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jews said to one another, Where does he intend to go that we won't find him? He doesn't intend to go to the Jewish people dispersed among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, does he? What is this remark he made? You will look for me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit 
for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. When some from the crowd heard these words, they said, this, some said, surely the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Doesn't the scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem where David lived? So the crowd was divided because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on to ask them, why didn't you bring him? The servants answered, no man ever spoke like this. Then the Pharisees responded to him, are you full too? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd which doesn't know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, the one who came to him previously and who was one of them, said to them, Our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? You aren't from Galilee too, are you? They replied. Investigate and you will see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You can be seated. Our big idea this morning, if you get this, grasp this sentence, you'll get this section. You'll really get the entire book of John. Jesus comes from God, returns to God, and gives the gift of God to those who recognize their need for God. Jesus comes, Jesus gives the gift of God to those who recognize their need for God. I'm going to say it one more time. Jesus comes from God. Jesus returns to God. Jesus gives the gift of God to those who recognize. Points from the text, we'll just be looking at the big idea. Jesus comes from God. Second, Jesus returns to God. Thirdly, Jesus gives the gift of God. First, Jesus comes from God. To understand him, his person, you have to understand his origin. Now, our text finds us in Jerusalem in the middle of the Feast of Shelters. At this point, so we're jumping in the middle of a conversation, Jesus has told the crowds, specifically the religious leaders, he's called them lawbreakers because they intend to kill him for healing someone on the Sabbath. That's the context we pick up in the middle of this heated exchange. Verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, isn't this the man that they're trying to kill? Yet look, he's speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him. Now you'll recall right before this, Jesus told the crowds, or asked them, why are you trying to kill me? They said, you're crazy. We're not trying to kill you. Here they're like, is this the guy they're trying to kill? (laughs) They know, some of them at least, they were lying. And it's actually confusing them, verse 26, because he's speaking publicly and yet no one's doing anything about it. really is the Messiah. Could he be the Messiah? No, no, they're thinking he can't be the Messiah because verse 27, look at the text. We know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, nobody will know where he is from. Waiting since the garden for the woman's seed, waiting since Abraham for his offspring, waiting since David for his greater son, waiting since exile for their second exodus. Israel has been waiting. Do you know what people do when they wait? They speculate, okay? Have you ever seen some people's end time charts? (laughs) Some people, I swear, they know what Jesus is gonna have for lunch on the day he returns. You can imagine, in all their waiting, 
Israel has begun to speculate about the Messiah. They've studied the scriptures, their tradition. They've made some right, some wrong assumptions about their long-awaited king. And this section is chocked full of these opinions about the Messiah's origin in particular. We'll see three. The first one, very popular, verse 27. When the Messiah comes, nobody will know where he is from. He would be an entirely unknown figure. He would simply spring onto the scene at the time of Israel's redemption. So the people are saying, for all that Jesus is teaching and his signs, he can't be the Messiah because we know where he's from. He grew up in Nazareth. He lives in Capernaum. Like, I went to high school with that. Like, he's a nice guy, but he can't be the king. Now, this section is just loaded with irony. Their opinion is wrong about the Messiah. They're kind of right about Jesus, though. They don't actually know where he's from. Second opinion, you have to go down and look in verse 42. Doesn't the scripture say that the Messiah comes from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem where David lived? Ding, ding, ding. Romans 1.3, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh. David's offspring. Matthew 2.1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He's from the town of Bethlehem. Opinion two is correct about the Messiah. They're just wrong about Jesus. Third opinion, it's not so much where Jesus is from, but more of where he can't be from. If you'll look, you'll see verse 41. Some people are saying this is Messiah, but some said, surely the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, does he? And then if you look even further down, verse 52, this is the religious leaders telling Nicodemus, investigate and you will see no prophet arises from Galilee. Hail from some hick town. We can't have our throne smelling like a manger. Here's the irony. They're so confident about scripture and Jesus, and yet they don't know either. He really is, according to the flesh, a descendant of David's, born in David's royal city, He really does live in Galilee where prophets before him have come, Jonah and Nahum, to name two, and yet he's so much more. The whole of Israel is waiting for a Messiah, just not the right one. Their entire culture has set up expectations and therefore constraints for the coming king such that when he comes, they miss him. They want a king, they just don't want Jesus. Brothers and sisters, if you are a slave to popular opinion, you'll miss the Christ when he comes. He will not meet the crowd's expectations. Well, my Jesus doesn't talk about sin. My Jesus doesn't preach repentance. My Jesus doesn't talk about the cross. My Jesus doesn't divide. My Jesus doesn't teach. My Jesus is me. Our idolatrous impulse is to make God and his Messiah into our own image, such that when he actually comes, we miss him. When he speaks, we don't hear him. Brothers and sisters, we have to allow our image of the king to be corrected by him. None of us walks into this room with unspoiled thoughts about God or his way of salvation. We have to receive him as he's sent. We have to believe as he's revealed. And if you get his origin right, both from Bethlehem and from heaven, you understand that he has divine and Davidic right to 
write the story as it were. All of Israel is mixed about Christ because they're wrong about where he's from. They're arguing with each other about the Messiah. Really, they're arguing with God about his son. Jesus responds there in verse 28. He cries out, you know me and you know where I'm from. You know me and you know where I'm from. I think Jesus is speaking ironically here. Very soon, chapter 8, verse 14, Jesus will tell them, you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. Jesus, I think, is being tongue-in-cheek. They're sitting here talking about they've got the Messiah figured out. Jesus is saying, okay, you, 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 you got it. You got me. You know where I'm from. But yet, he keeps going, verse 28, I have not come on my own, that is my own authority, but the one who sent me is true. You don't know him. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. You see, what makes Jesus' message not only true but beyond scrutiny is his origin. He is God's eternal word come into the world. His words are true because he is true God from true God. To take issue with Christ in his words is to take issue with God. His home and his mission are characterized by truth. We ought to listen to him. Jess and I recently started watching Top Chef. Any Top Chef fans in here? We watched our first season. Season 11, New Orleans. If that means anything to anybody. If you're not familiar with the show, it is a cooking show, as the name suggests. Now, they're not amateurs like on the Great British Baking Show. It's no diss to GBB. You know, GBB for life. Uh, but these people are very skilled. They work at Michelin star restaurants. They're really, really good. But they're not the best. The judges on the show are the best. They're some of the most accomplished chefs in the world. They have Michelin stars. This is why they do the tasting, the judging, the critiquing. If they say your dish is salty, it's turnt. You can debate with them if you want to look stupid. The normal thing to do is to see to someone with higher credentials than you. Like you don't tell the guy who wrote the book on French cooking how to chop an onion. You bow before his mastery. You take notes. Whatever thoughts we have about God or his way of salvation melt away as he stoops low and begins to teach. To rise against him is to demonstrate our own stupidity and unrighteousness. It is, John 7, 18, to speak from ourselves and for our own glory. Jesus, on the other hand, comes from the one is true. He seeks his glory. Therefore, John 7, 18, he is true. We can trust his words and his offer because of his origin. Jesus comes from God. Jesus also, as we'll see, returns to God. So here's the scene. People are privately discrediting Jesus because they think they know where he's from. He stands up, he teaches. The reaction is mixed. Some people don't like it. Verse 30, they try to seize him. This is our chance. Let's grab him. And they seem to be hindered by divine providence. Other people, verse 31, believed in him. They have just kind of simple confession. When the Messiah comes, will he do more signs than this man? Now, the debate among the crowd is happening. It's ensuing. It rises to the ears of the religious leaders. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd murmur at temple guards to arrest him. The leaders have been trying to kill Jesus since John chapter 5. They've enacted a citywide ban on all Jesus talk. 
He's publicly teaching. They seem less concerned about that at this point and more worried about the fact that the attention of the crowds have shifted to Christ. You recall, glory is a zero-sum game. He's taking the focus away from them. They send the temple guards to arrest him. Jesus know this. Rather than retreating, he teaches again. Verse 33. I'm only with you for a short time. Then I'm going to the one who sent me. Jesus knew that his time with them was limited, short, brief. The religious leaders are already plotting to kill him. Judas has already been chosen to betray him. The hour of his glorious death was appointed before the first second ticked in creation. With every teaching, with every sign, with every whisper in the crowd, Jesus draws near to his last His time here was brief, not because his mission was a failure. The son had to die as the lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. More than that, his death is only the first stop on his journey. On his journey that leads his one from humiliation to glory, from tomb to heaven, from cross to crown. This is not simply good news for the son, it's good news news for us the gospel doesn't end with the cross it ends with us sharing in the son's resurrection in his glory what happens to him happens to us if you look down at verse 39 you see it was not until he was glorified that is not until his human nature was perfected elevated enthroned that he then gave the gift of the spirit everything that he accomplished on earth and experiences in heaven He distributes to us when he sits in victory. It's from the throne room of heaven that he showers gifts on his people. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For it says when he ascended on high, he took the captives captive. He gave gifts to people. For there to be good news, he must make it back. And ironically, It's as they kill this Nazarene that he returns from whence he came. It's his death that leads to life for us. Israel's rejection of him that leads to heaven's acceptance. Jesus says, I am only with you for a short time. Then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me. But come. Jesus offers a chilling warning. The time that they have to respond to his invitation is limited. Why? He won't always be with them. In fact, in the future, they'll look for him. They won't be able to find him. He says, you will look for me, but you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Kind of hard to understand. I think Jesus is probably saying one of either two things. Either when the tomb is empty and I've ascended, you're going to be looking for me. I won't be here. I'll be in heaven. Or you'll continue to look for the Messiah, the one to fulfill the office. You're not going to find him because you missed me. What Jesus is not saying is that one day you're going to be earnestly coming to me for salvation. But it will be too late. I won't welcome you then. You missed your chance. No, you recall what Jesus says in John 6, 37. Everyone the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will then reject none who go to him in faith. We're about to see his invitation is universal. It comes with no conditions. In leaving, 
Jesus doesn't become harder to find. He's bodily in heaven, yes, but he's present. Respond is limited because our time here on earth is short. Jesus, I think, is saying you can't go where I'm going because you don't believe me. You'll look for me, but not to me. Therefore, where I am, you cannot come. My time with you is short. Notice brevity of time creates urgency of action. If you're living somewhere and there's an announcement that a storm is coming that will be so severe that you need to evacuate. There's an emergency evacuation. The governor is telling everyone to leave and you have 24 hours. You don't wait until the 23rd hour to leave. You pack up your family, you help those around you as well as you can, and you leave. Brevity of time creates urgency of action. The whole of Jesus' life is characterized by mission. Even now as he stands before his accusers, he's pleading with them to consider his offer. My time with you is short. Brothers and sisters, our time here is short. Your time with those whom you love who do not know Jesus is short. When you die, you will go to a place they cannot go. We should feel urgency to preach the good news of the gospel with them. Don't be lulled into thinking that life is long. Don't believe the lie that your lost friends will starts falling apart that might happen. What you can be certain of is that you are God's ambassador. You can be sure that God has called you and put you in their life to share the good news of Jesus with them. Do not procrastinate your job. Your time here is short and apart from their belief they will look but not find. Now the son is warning them here to prepare them for his offer. Jesus comes from God, Jesus returns to God, and Jesus gives the gift of God to those who recognize their need for him. Jesus gives the gift of God to those who recognize their need for him. So after Jesus teaches this about him returning, there's more confusion. It's the perennial problem in the book of John. Because of sin, people lack the natural ability to understand or see the supernatural. His mother's womb a second time. How, how do you get in there? The woman of the well, where's your bucket? The people in John 6, we need to chew on your body. Verse 35, he's going where? To the Greeks? The idea it seems to be that when Jesus has failed here, he's going to go to the Gentiles. They don't grasp his heavenly origin. So here we are midweek at the festival. Jesus' reception is mixed. Some believe others are ready to put hands on him. The Pharisees have called the temple guards to arrest him. Jesus, it seems, fades back into the distance. You recall the festival boost, seven-day-long festival. This is all taking place midweek. The next time we see Jesus, verse 37, is on the last day, the seventh day. The festival has gone on. Jesus is in the back. People are still wondering, who is he? Where is he? Verse 37, on the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. We don't really get how big of a deal this is. 
you got to understand what's going on during the last and most important day of the festival. Again, this is the festival of shelters. All of Israel would come to It was looking back and looking forward. They were recalling God's faithfulness as he brought Israel up out of slavery from Egypt, as God provided for Israel's needs as they wandered in the wilderness. And two rituals characterize the festival. There's a water ritual and a light ritual. Both looked back and they looked forward. The water ritual looked back to what we heard in our scripture reading from Exodus 17. When it seemed as though there was no hope, no river or rain in sight, Israel, desperate, feeling as though they were going to die from thirst, cries out in the wilderness for water. Moses struck the rock, water came out for the people. In a desert of death, God gave his people life. God provides life for his people. So the people look back to God's provision, knowing that he's capable of fulfilling his future promises. Israel was waiting for more than water from a rock. As we heard in our other scripture reading, Joel 2, Israel was waiting for God to pour out his spirit like water on his people and land. They were waiting for the Messiah to bring an unprecedented outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They were waiting for the new covenant, like we hear in Ezekiel 36, where the Lord says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities, spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. They were waiting for the new temple seen in Ezekiel 47 for new creation in Zechariah chapter 14 where the river of God flows out from Jerusalem giving life to the world. As pilgrims in the wilderness, God supplied life from the rock. Now as pilgrims in their own again, pouring out his spirit on his people and land to restore all that was lost to sin. And for one week, every year, the people gather to recall God's faithfulness and remind him of his promises, prayer and praise, thanksgiving and expectation. This is what's on everybody's mind. And here's the scene on the seventh, the last and most important day of the festival. People are wondering, will God act to save us today? Will he open the heavens and cleanse our land? Could Jesus, could Jesus be the spirit-anointed Messiah? He already provided bread from heaven. Could he bring water from the rock? Last day of the festival, last and most important day. This is the scene the high priests would walk a large golden container to the pool of Shalom temple. A parade of pilgrims would be behind him following him like Israel following Moses. The pilgrims are holding figs and citrus fruit. And as the priests entered into the courts from the water gate, the faithful of Israel would be gathered. A trumpet would blast. The high priest then in his procession would circle around the altar. All the while, the priestly choir is singing. All the people are singing the Hillel. They're singing Psalms 113 to 118. Picture this vision. You might think in there, all eyes are on this one. Man, everybody, thousands are singing Psalm 114. Tremble earth at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool. 
Thousands are singing Psalm 115, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name. Give glory because of your faithful love, because of your truth. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven, and he does whatever he pleases. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord. Thousands upon thousands singing Psalm 118. This is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. Lord, save us. Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. You are, will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. As the crowd and choir in singing Psalm 118, the pilgrims hold up their fruit and twigs in the air, and they shout three times, Give thanks to the Lord! Give thanks to the Lord! Give thanks to the Lord! The high priest then pours the water into an offering bowl. Israel is giving water back to God in thanks for his provision in the wilderness and in anticipation of the Messiah who would come to pour out his spirit on his people and land. This is the scene. And at some point on this day, Jesus stands up and cries, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. There's no mistake about what Jesus is saying. The God who's applied water from the rock is here. The age of the Messiah is now. The time of washing and renewal, of forgiveness and life, of new creation and adoption is today. Simply come to me and drink. Come and drink. Jesus offers an invitation. It echoes a text they all would five. Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the water. And you without silver, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk. Without silver and without cost, why do you spend silver on what is not food? And your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. And you will enjoy the choicest of foods. Pay attention and come to me. Listen so that you will live. Jesus extends an offer to all who hear. If Anyone is thirsty. No one is excluded from his cleansing waters. None are denied his life-giving rivers. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. There's only one prerequisite. Simply knowing you're thirsty. Jesus' offer is not for the full not for the satisfied, not for the rich in spirit, not for the moral, not for the perfect, not for those who are content in the world. Jesus comes for the sick, for the downtrodden, for the weak, for the dissatisfied, for the broken, for the poor, for the guilty. If anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. If you recognize your guilt, come find forgiveness in me. If sin has left you, come find rest in me. All who are thirsty, come. Come without silver or gold. Come without works or ritual. Come without prep or delay. Simply come.
Come have life. Come be happy in my waters. Simply come. Jesus' invitation is remarkable. He asks nothing of us and gives us everything in return. Bring your rebellion and take my righteousness. Bring your hatred and have my love. Bring your death and have my life. Come with your need and leave overflowing. Jesus alone has what can supply an entire world with abundant life. John tells us what he's talking about. What's the gift he gives us in the gospel? He's speaking about the Spirit. God is not the kind of wealthy parent who gives us gifts but not himself. No, Jesus gives us the gift of the Spirit because it unites us to him. The Spirit, God himself, takes up residence in us, giving us all that belongs to Christ and sweet communion with him. I look at Christ only at a distance, but embraces him, that he may become ours and may dwell in us. It causes us to be incorporated with him, to have life in common with him, and in short, to become one with him. All that he has becomes ours. His righteousness becomes ours. His sonship becomes ours. His kingdom becomes ours. But God doesn't simply give us gifts. In the gospel, God holds out his son to us. He bids us to come and be embraced in him. Be clothed in my son. Come and drink. Jesus gives us the gift of God. To be indwelt by God. To be united to God. To be redeemed to God. To be made like God insofar as we can. Jesus gives us himself bids us to eat his flesh and drink his spirit. How is this possible? How can God forgive us who murmur in the wilderness? Us who make idols in our own image? Us who would plot to kill the king? How can he invite us to drink without cost? It does cost. It just didn't cost us. Spirit could not have been poured out apart from the Son's death, resurrection, ascension. Paul tells us just something staggering in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. He says that the wilderness generation drank from the spiritual rock, and the rock was Christ. The rock that they drank from was Christ. In the wilderness, perhaps you heard this, in the scripture reading, Yahweh says that he'll stand in front of the rock that's to be struck. In the wilderness, the rock that was struck to provide water for a distrusting generation was God the Son. On the cross, the rock of ages is struck. And the well that flowed from his side provides a double cure for sin, safe from wrath, and he makes us pure. On the cross, the Son is judged in our place. Receiving what we deserved, he's struck for sin. In heaven, he pours out all that he has and deserves on us who believe. Non-Christian friend, Jesus today, right now from the throne of heaven, cries out to you and invites you to come and drink from his waters. Take nothing to him but your guilt and thirst. Cast yourself upon him, and in return, he gives you of Jesus Christ. Jesus came from God. He returns to God. He gives the gift of God to those who...
who recognize their need for him. Sadly, not all do. Verse 43 and 44 summarize the response to Christ's announcement and invitation. 43, the crowds were divided because of him. 44, some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Who wants to see him? We seize him. We see it in verse 45, the chief priests and the Pharisees. The people who should have been in best position to recognize and receive the Messiah reject him, and they plot his murder. Ironically, they accuse the crowds of being accursed and not knowing the law, though they themselves intend to break the law and kill the lawgiver himself. They accuse one of their own, Nicodemus, of being just as ignorant of Scripture as a hick from Galilee. Their minds are made up about Jesus. He can't be the Messiah. They don't recognize him. And yet, to those who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God, is on the other end of the spectrum. She couldn't be further from this room. Alone at a well in Samaria, a moral outcast among her own people, not welcomed within a mile of the temple. Come and drink. Come and be cleansed. You think you're too far gone, but you're not. Come and find satisfaction in the groom your soul was made for. She believes and she overflows with water to her town. Here's the thing, the religious leaders and the crowd, us, we're just as thirsty as the woman at the well. The souls of the leaders are just as barren. Sin has left the same stain on us all. The difference, those who receive Christ understand their need for him. Brothers and sisters, we, the religious, will be most susceptible to thinking we no longer need him, but we do. Jesus cries out to us this morning to remember our need again, our brokenness, our sin, and to cling to him and him alone for life. His flesh is our food. His spirit is our water. In the gospel, God himself comes to us to give us himself. May that be enough for us. Let's pray.